Well, if you have your Bibles, grab them. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. And then in a few minutes, we're going to jump into John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. We'll get to the scripture in just a second. This morning, we're going to begin a 10-week study of the doctrine of the church. We're going to look at what we believe as a church. Uh, we're going to look at the doctrines that are most central and essential to the Christian faith. Uh, doctrine uh, might sound like a heavy word. You might hear the word doctrine and be like, oh my gosh, it doesn't need to be heavy. Doctrine is not meant to suppress. It's not meant to restrict. It's actually the opposite. Doctrine and clear doctrine helps us to live fully and freely on the true foundation of God and his word. I wanna give you just a working definition of doctrine as we get going uh, to help us and think about for these next 10 weeks. It says this, the word doctrine refers to the act of teaching or the substance of what is taught. The Christian practice of articulating who God is rests upon the foundational revelation given to us in the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When the apostle Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus declares it was the father who revealed this to him, uh, Matthew 16. Doctrine is the summation of God's revelation. And for these next 10 weeks, that's what we're gonna be talking about around here. In our church, we've articulated 10 individual summation statements. Uh, we've shared these with you uh, earlier in the winter, early spring. Uh, there's some copies of them on the back and the tables back there. Uh, these are all on our website. But for the next 10 weeks, we're going to walk through these doctrines one at a time. And the first doctrine is the doctrine concerning Scripture. So I want you to hear this summation statement of what we believe about Scripture. We believe God has revealed the truth about himself in the inerrant scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. They hold the complete revelation of his will for salvation and are the ultimate authority by which all human endeavors should be judged. Uh, any of you guys believe uh, that statement? It's a lot, there's a lot going on there, but any of you guys believe that one? I think it'd be important for us to read it out loud together one more time just to help you, help you think about it. Uh, there's a lot there. Um, so, so let's read it out loud. Here we go. We believe God has revealed the truth about himself in the inerrant scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. They hold the complete revelation of his will for salvation and are the ultimate authority by which all human endeavors should be judged. I want to talk a little bit about that statement this morning. I want to begin by talking just really briefly, like just for a minute, about the history of Scripture, the history of the 66 books that make up the Bible. The Bible was written by more than 40 authors over a period of 1,500 years in three different languages on three different continents. By the time that Jesus shows up, uh, the Jewish faith had been using what they called the Hebrew word, the Tanakh, the Hebrew word, the Tanakh, what we call the Old Testament. So up to Jesus... Uh, there is this Old Testament scriptures 
the Tanakh. They were divided into four sections, the histories, the law, the writings, and the prophets. When Jesus comes uh, to his hometown, it would be the Tanakh that he read when he first said that he was the Messiah. The scroll of Isaiah was unraveled and Jesus read uh, Isaiah 61. He would have read the Tanakh. After his death and resurrection, these new churches, these fledgling churches, mostly they were house churches, they continued to read the Tanakh. They continued to read the Old Testament. A typical service probably was a gathering in somebody's little house, a place where they would group a little group of Jesus followers, would pray together. They'd read a little bit of the scripture. They might even sing a hymn together. And then someone would probably talk a little bit about what this particular scripture had to say. About the same time, some of Jesus's closest followers began to document their experiences with Jesus. And guys like Peter and John started writing down what they saw and what happened. Some other people that were close to him, Matthew started to write down. Some other guys took on that journey to figure out like what happened. They did some interviews. Guys like Luke tried to find out exactly what happened by getting firsthand accounts and talking to witnesses. Later, after Jesus had resurrected and ascended, some other church leaders started to write. Guys like Paul started to write letters. They were personal letters that were written to these little house churches, these churches that were founded and grounded all over Asia. And they would include sort of personal, direct content that was for that particular group, but would be larger truth for all Christians to follow. So these letters uh, to these churches, they got copied and they got passed around. They got shared with all the other little churches around. And um, these letters started to help encourage people. Uh, more and more people wanted to hear what the apostles actually had to say. It was really, really a beautiful time. But there became so many letters and so many documents and so many things that were copied and were making the rounds. Uh, people, things started flying around and there were creeds, different kinds of creeds and some different kinds of letters talking about Jesus. And by the mid 300s after death by the mid 300s there was the church big c church decided hey let's get together and let's decide what belongs in the scriptures let's get together and for a long time in the 300s these sort of church councils would determine what would be in this book what would be in our scriptures the criteria there's a few different pieces of criteria but the criteria of what would be determined on how a book would either be included or excluded might be that it had to be written by an eyewitness of Jesus or someone really close to Jesus, or it had to be recognized as truth by an early church leader. If this letter was going to be included in scripture, it had to have divine inspiration and it had to agree with all of the teachings of the rest of the Bible. So by the late 366 uh, books that we now have were formally adopted by the church and these are the Holy Scriptures. Around here we say 
that we are being transformed by the gospel to live and love like Jesus. From the very beginning of this church, 12 and a half years ago, we said we are being transformed by the gospel to live and love like Jesus. Everything we do around here points us to, positions us in, places us where we can be exposed to the gospel, where the gospel be in us, grow in us, dwell in us, and then live through us, to be transformed by the gospel, to live in love like Jesus. Gospel just means good news. This is really good news. The gospel is good news. It's not anything if it's not good news. Jesus said, I have come to preach the good news. Everything in scripture points to the reality of the love of God expressed through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that is really good news. Scripture is our foundation for everything. And it guides us into living in this reality, this identity as Christians. It guides us to live in it and it guides us to live it out. Hebrews chapter four, verse 12 says this about scripture. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The Bible is not a thing. The Bible is not something that we take into a laboratory and dissect that we pull apart and figure out. It's not a handbook. It's not a roadmap. It's not a geopolitical history. And it does not seek to answer every question about every topic in life. It's not a documentary. What the Bible is, is a narrative of God's relationship with humanity. It's the history of the plan of salvation from creation to the fall, to the death and resurrection of Jesus, to the foundation of church, to the triumphant return of Jesus, and to life everlasting. This is the living word of God. This is the living word of God. That means it's a livable reality for you and me. It's our livable identity for you and me. Our whole life, death, resurrection, all can be found, measured, named, and known in the good news of the scripture. If you have your Bibles, flip over to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And then we're going to read verse 14 as well. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. I said this in the first hour. I love our worship uh, when we sing. I love the singing and the worship is beautiful. It's got to be the most beautiful sound that heaven hears is the worship of his people. Uh, I think real close to that is that sound that you guys just made when you turned the pages of scripture in your Bibles. That sound of the turning of the pages is beautiful, beautiful sound. I believe heaven rejoices. In the beginning was the word. That's Jesus. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning and through Jesus, all things were made. And without Jesus, nothing was made that has been made. In Jesus was life. 
And that life was the light of all mankind. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. And then verse 14, the word, Jesus, became flesh, incarnate. He made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, John says, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. This is incredible. The name given to Jesus is the word. From the opening pages of this great love story to the last page, the name given to Jesus is the word. He is the word. John chapter one, verse one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. This word is written down in a book. And yet before this word was written down in a book, this word was God and was with God. Before the word became revealed as letters on scrolls and words in books, he was and is the son of God, the second person of the Trinity. At the beginning of time, this happened. Through Jesus, all things were made at the beginning of time. Without Jesus, nothing was made that has been made. John chapter one, verse three. And in the fullness of time, this happened. Through Jesus, uh, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. The word of God, before the beginning, the word of God made flesh and text. This is the source and substance of our faith. Apart from the primary source, we cannot know God. Apart from knowing God, we cannot know ourselves. And apart from knowing ourselves, we cannot know our neighbors. Uh, and probably the hardest part, apart from knowing our neighbors, we cannot love them. And apart from loving our neighbors, we do not love God and we're only deceiving ourselves. Another passage of scripture. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 through 17. 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 17. Paul is writing uh, to his young friend, Timothy. He's now a local pastor. And Paul is encouraging Timothy to hold fast to the truths of scripture. He writes this, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, I want, just look at verse 16 real quick. Really powerful. This whole passage is super powerful. But verse 16, all scripture is God-breathed. Sometimes we say that all scripture is divinely inspired our summation statement says that the scriptures of the Old and New Testament are inerrant. That means without error because all scripture is God-breathed. There can't be anything wrong because it's God's breath 
that fills this divinely inspired book. Not some scripture, not the kind of parts of the scripture, not just some scripture was God breathed or in certain situations or when it seems right or appropriate, but all scripture, that means all sacred writing here in this text, all scripture, sacred writing applies and is divinely inspired through the breath of God. It's God breathed, it's alive, it's God breathed. We live in a creation brought into being by God breathed words. We are image bearers of God, those into whom God breathed the breath of life. And we know these things because in our hands is this book filled with God breathed words. Peter's going to write something similar to what Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, for prophecy never had its origin in human will. But prophets, through humans, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God breathed. God breathed. God breathed. These scriptures, they can and do teach us, correct us, and they train us, they rebuke us. These ways in which we learn to live and love. Here's the end of verse 17. I love this. So that we will be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We'd be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Transformation is not about reading these sacred words. It's about living in and living out these sacred words. Jesus speaks a lot about loving. He talks about it quite a lot. It's not just knowing the love of God or knowing this concept, but actually loving others. We are equipped for every good work. There's movement here. It's dynamic. The Sermon on the Mount uh, probably the greatest sermon that's ever been preached and the greatest sermon that ever will be preached. It ends with this little story. Jesus tells this little story in Matthew chapter 7, uh, 24 through 27. It's right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. There's a difference, Jesus is saying, in those who know the word of God, and those who live in the word of God. Jesus goes so far as to say, even though you might know all of these words, you might have a vast wealth of knowledge, but if you don't live them out, he says you're actually foolish. He says you're foolish. The wise man is the one who puts these words into practice. One of, as you read the gospels, you've probably will notice time and time and time again, one of the pervasive challenges that Jesus seemed to face day after day was with the religious elite. Uh, they're the ones who kept the letters of the law. They're the ones who knew the scriptures. They're the ones that were always questioning him like, Jesus, 
Why are you healing people on the Sabbath? Like, hold on a second, Jesus, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful to heal, it's not lawful to work on the Sabbath. These guys knew the Old Testament, they knew the Bible, but they didn't recognize the God of the Bible when he showed up. And I think this happens a lot. I'm gonna just share a really goofy story. Uh, just a really goofy story, and I'm just going to trust that the Spirit will speak in however ways in which the Spirit wants to speak in this goofy story. A few years ago, a bunch of us from Sanctuary went to Israel. It was the wildest trip. It was so crazy. There's like 50 of us, I think, that went to Israel. And we got to go, as part of our trip, we got to go to the Jordan River. The Jordan River is where Jesus was baptized. And while we were there, some people in our church said that they wanted to get baptized in the Jordan River. And I was like, heck yeah, this is going to be amazing. And so we all got together. Uh, uh, David was there and Sonny and Becky, Becky got baptized in the Jordan River. Uh, we we're all there and it was just the coolest thing. And right before we did this baptism in the Jordan River, you guys, uh, we did this little devotional. I read some scripture. Uh, we did this devotional. And then we all, uh, those that wanted to, came into the water. I got some pictures here real quick. Sonny helped me find these earlier this week. My son-in-law uh, helped me uh, do these baptisms in the Jordan River where Jesus was baptized. It was incredible. As we finished and are coming up out of the Jordan River, uh, I'm Santa with my youngest daughter, AGB, and I'm, I'm just, I am a wreck. Like I'm just crying and I'm like, this is the greatest day of my life. And AGB said, I thought the day you baptized, uh, the day that you, that you adopted me was the greatest day of your life. And I was like, well, okay. So that was just, but that was a really cool day. And we got on the bus and we were just all hanging out. We were just having a good time and we made it back to the hotel. And I was just like on cloud nine. I just thought this was the greatest day ever. And then I was, just, I was like, man, where's my Bible? Where's my Bible? I can't find my, I turned over the hotel room. I couldn't find my Bible. Uh, I ended up going out to the bus uh, right after I got into an argument with my wife because I couldn't find my Bible. It was like a really big deal. And I went out to the bus and turned the bus over. And I was like, oh my gosh, I can't find my Bible. True story. I called the Jordan River hotline to ask if they had found my Bible. And they said, no, we haven't found your Bible. And I don't know, I don't know about you guys, but then I really wept. I lost my Bible in Israel. AGB, the coolest kid on the planet, she thought that it would be really cool if I got a new Bible in Israel. She goes, dad, this is gonna be awesome. We could buy you, I could, I'm gonna buy you a Bible in Israel. And I was like, I don't, I, don't, I don't want a Bible from Israel. I want my Bible. And she'd finally had enough. And she said, Dad, it's like you worship the Bible or something and not the God of the Bible. One more passage of scripture. Just about every day, I'm going to find myself at some point in the day in the Gospels and in the Psalms. So I want us to read the first six verses of Psalm 1. First six verses, Psalm 1. In fact, I'm going to ask if we can read these all out loud, and then we'll just talk about the first two verses. Psalm 1, 1 through 6. It's a bit of a prologue for the book of Psalms. Let's read this out loud together. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, 
or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so with the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. So I want to talk about a couple points here. First two verses. Blessed is the one, blessed is the one whose delight is in the word of the Lord and who meditates on the word day and night. He delights in the word. He meditates on the word. I love the word delight. There is a great plumb line that could be stretched across this room. It's the plumb line that we could use to differentiate between those who are being transformed by the gospel and those who are not, those who are just going through the motions. And it could be summarized in the word delight. I, 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 like, I like this word. It's a feeling word, delight. It's not believe or repent, delight. It's an emotional response. Let me just ask you real quick. Do you delight? Do you delight in his word? Do you delight in his word and his truth? Do you delight in his presence? Maybe this would be a question that you guys could talk about later on with a friend or your spouse or somebody else. You could talk about, you could talk about your answer. I won't ask you to answer this out loud. But if we could like number your delight quotient with the word. Let's say zero is no delight. I don't delight at all. And 10 is like, man, I can't wait to be with God alone with this book. Where would you put your delight quotient quotient on that continuum from zero to 10. You don't have to say it out loud. Just asking you to think about it for a second. What's your delight quotient with the word? I bet that if I asked you a similar question, if I asked you to put on this continuum God's delight of you, like, like when you think about God and he thinks about you, how is his delight quotient over you? Is it like way down here, like, oh my gosh, don't delight in that guy at all. Or, oh, this guy. I would bet that your delight quotient with the word and your belief of his delight quotient in you is gonna be about the same number. The more you delight in his word, the more you're gonna understand his delight of you. The less that you delight in his word, the more that you see it as I just got to do this thing and it's a grudge and I don't like, the more you're going to believe that he's not delighted in you. Blessed is the one who delights in the word of the Lord and who meditates on it day and night. This word meditate. Scripture says delight comes from meditating. Now, don't get crazy. I'm not going crazy. Don't get crazy. Meditate in the language of the psalmist. It invokes this idea of slow eating. 
when we're meditating, the psalmist is saying when we're meditating, it's like we're slowly eating. The better translation is slowly chew. We're going to delight in God's word. We're going to meditate on his word. We're going to slowly chew. It's what the bowlers do when we go to Johnny's Pizza on Friday nights. We take our time. We have deep conversation, long conversation. We tell jokes and we tell stories and we take our time and we get refills and more refills. We sit there almost all night long. We have a blast. The more we meditate on the ways and the will of the Lord, the more you will realize that you are blessed. What will bring us the greatest joy is living in his blessing and in turn blessing others. Meditating on his word helps us to delight in him and delighting in him will draw us to meditate. And this is the most important point of all from the Psalm, Psalm 1. The difference between the blessed ones and the wicked ones comes down to one thing. Their deep and abiding engagement with the word of God. Let me close with uh, one little illustration. Anybody here know the song, Jesus Loves Me? This I know, for the Bible tells me so. I won't make you sing it, but know that song? Well, the guy who led me and a bunch of us to Christ at this summer camp in Arizona, uh, he would sing that song all the time. Jesus loves me, this I know. And he believed that the Bible was livable reality. And every time he finished a talk, every time he finished a sermon, he'd end it by saying, Jesus loves you, this I know because the Bible tells me so, every time he finished. And I always used to think, like, could you not come up with anything more creative when you finish this talk, you know? Anyway, I became a Christian and I, I started giving talks and sure enough, every time I ended a talk, I would end it that way. Jesus loves you, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. I just thought that was cool. It just somewhere along the line, I, I stopped doing that. Maybe I need to pick that up again. Well, this was like a denominational leader. We were all at this Summer camp is a denominational summer camp. Um, and the denominational leaders in California decided that our guy, our pastor, the guy that led us all to Christ was going to be transferred to another assignment. And when he told us that, we said, that's the dumbest thing we've ever heard. And a bunch of us 19-year-olds jumped in the van and drove to California to the denominational headquarters and kicked down the door. And we were like, you are not taking our pastor. How do you think that worked out? <laughs> it's exactly happened the way you think it happened. Our guy says, hey, uh, this is going to be my last Sunday. It's going to be on this day. Uh, where I'll have this big deal on this day. And he said, I'm going to give you the most important talk. I'm going to teach you the most important thing that I could teach you guys. And we were like, okay, this is going to be awesome. And we brought our Bibles and we all had our notebooks out. We were all sitting on the edge of the seat and he comes up and he's got his Bible there and uh, he kind of smiles at us and he doesn't point at us, but he says, Jesus loves you. This I know because the Bible tells me so. And then he sat down. And that was it. I think the most appropriate way for me to end this message is to say that to you. Jesus loves you. This I know, 
for the Bible tells me so. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your word that reminds us over and over and over and over that you are the God of love. Your word is a light unto our feet and it is a lamp unto our path. Jesus, would you help us? Would you help us today? Would you help me today to be guided and directed and redirected and blessed by your word? It's in your name that I pray.